Welcome to World Policy on Air, a weekly podcast from the pages and website of World Policy Journal, published by the nonprofit World Policy Institute in New York. I'm David Alpern. In this week's program, posted March 17, 2017, we talk about the future of U.S.-China relations in the Trump era with NYU professor Ann Lee, author of What the U.S. Can Learn from China. We'll also point out top features in the new WPJ winter issue, cover line Interrupted, with the unique perspective provided by all female writers and editors. But first, this week's Winners and Losers report from Ian Bremer, president of Eurasia Group, Global Risk Consultants. Winners and losers, Brexit wheels keep on turning. United Kingdom, winner for now, they've actually cleared the way for Article 50. Scotland, winner for now, they've cleared the way for a Scottish referendum, though they eventually won't vote on it. Prime Minister May, winner for now, she's doing the best job she can in a possible situation. Sturgeon, winner for now, she's still, she's behind that Scottish referendum. And finally, Brussels, loser for now and pretty much forever because this is just so damn hard to negotiate. You're listening to World Policy on Air. Now this. I fully understand the one China policy, but I don't know why we have to be bound by a one China policy unless we make a deal with China having to do with other things. When China doesn't want to fix the problem in North Korea, we say, sorry, folks, you got to fix the problem because we can't continue to allow China to rape our country. I had a very, very good conversation, as most of you know yesterday with the president of china i think we are on the process of getting along very well there's been more than just tough talk about china from donald trump both before and after his election as president by secret prearrangement as president-elect trump accepted a phone call from the president of taiwan a summit-level diplomatic challenge to beijing's claimed sovereignty over the island state and after challenging Beijing's questionable claims to islands and waters of the South China Sea, President Trump earlier this year dispatched a powerful Navy strike group to the area, raising the risk of confrontation by accident or design. After a February phone call with Chinese President Xi Jinping, however, Trump endorsed the One China policy after all. His defense secretary, James Mattis, declared that territorial disputes were far better settled by international law and diplomacy than by the show or use of force. And China, for its part, cut coal imports from North Korea by half to press for restraint on nuclear and missile tests. Yet a U.S. war with China, military or economic, is still a real threat in the minds of many around the world. Posted on the WPJ blog is a talking policy feature with NYU professor Ann Lee, author of What the U.S. Can Learn from China, about the future of relations between the two mighty nations. And we discussed it recently for this podcast. Professor Lee, welcome to World Policy on Air. Thank you. When President Trump was first elected, you expressed worry about the future of U.S.-China relations. Now that we've seen the policy contradictions that characterize his administration, at least so far, how do you think this tension will play out? Well, Trump has said that his strategy is to keep people guessing. And so I expect that these policy contradictions will likely continue throughout his term. I certainly hope that this tension will resolve itself through some kind of productive cooperation or an agreement between these two countries. 
but it can really easily go in the opposite direction as well. What do you think the worst case scenario would be? Well, I'd hate to contemplate the worst case scenario because I think that uh, that scenario could likely be a real hot war between the two countries that somehow leads to a World War III through a series of miscalculation, misunderstanding, and other provocations. How likely do you think that really is, and most likely where, around those South China Sea islands that Trump suggested defending, or in response to new U.S. missile deployments to South Korea, maybe increased militarization by U.S. ally Japan. There's also a Chinese naval base under construction in the African nation of Djibouti that's already worrying a nearby U.S. military camp. They're all possibilities. I don't think that one is necessarily more likely than the other because uh, any of them can turn into a real hot spot because uh, each one of them have different players involved and it's certainly uh, possible that more than one can actually erupt. I say this only because Trump's closest advisors, Peter Navarro and Steve Bannon, have themselves in the past said to media that they see a war with China very likely. Peter, I think, even said that he sees this possibility as high as 70%. So I don't know if it's because they themselves are trying to push for a war, which is why they would peg uh, the situation with such high probability, but um, that certainly is worrisome. Some say that uh, Trump's political advisors see a war as the best way to get him uh, more extreme authority of the sort that he wants. We don't hear a lot of Chinese perspectives in the Western media on this. What's been the Chinese government's general reaction to the proposals of the Trump administration? Some say uh, China fears itself more vulnerable than the U.S., both in military and economic terms. I think it'd be fair to say that the Chinese government has been unnerved, as has many other countries around the world, like Mexico or Australia, uh, even Sweden. Um, I think that uh, they certainly hope for the best with the Trump administration. Uh, we see that they've already made various moves to uh, try to charm Ivanka and Jared during Chinese New Year in Washington. Uh, I think that they are trying to figure out how to best smooth relations uh, with Trump. And uh, it remains to be seen you know, how effective they're going to be at this. The Chinese have zero interest in uh, having a military conflict with the U.S. And therefore, uh, I think you know, they will try everything they can to try to avoid it. What do you make of China's cutting coal imports to pressure North Korea on one hand, also proposing another round of previously failed six power talks to halt its nuclear and missile programs, including the U.S. and China, of course, North and South Korea, Russia and Japan? Uh, the White House later said yes and then no to back channel talks directly with Pyongyang. China is trying to send a signal, basically extending an olive branch by announcing these coal imports, uh, basically saying this is a, a good faith uh, show that China is trying to support uh, Trump's agenda in reining in North Korea's behavior around uh, developing its nuclear arsenal. And, you know, like I said, China will try whatever they can to try to uh, tamp down tensions. 
I don't think that this is going to be the last of their moves that they're going to do to signal their intentions of wanting peace. The charge that China is stealing jobs from America was clearly a key theme of Trump's campaign. How do you see that? Well, it is a key theme. Whether I agree with the theme is something else. Uh, certainly, Trump had touched on uh, a nerve in the U.S. Uh, because so many Americans are jobless or uh, have jobs that are not uh, something that they can live on. So by targeting China as a scapegoat, that's been a very popular move, um, not just by Trump, but of other politicians in the past. And, uh, and so it was an easy way to uh, get attention and votes by Trump. Um, but if you look at the actual uh, data on what's going on, um, it's actually not quite accurate. Uh, it would be difficult to just point China as stealing jobs when so many other low-income uh, manufacturing jobs have gone to many other countries all over the world, whether it's Bangladesh or India or Vietnam, Mexico, you name it. And, uh, and anyone who looks at the numbers will see that, yes, manufacturing jobs were leaving U.S long before China came onto the scene after WTO. In fact, America signed NAFTA, and those jobs are already going to Mexico before they went to China. So it, it's, it's more rhetoric than uh, you know, true, I guess, accuracy in, in what the real picture is. The real picture is far more complicated. And frankly, I think robots and artificial intelligence is actually stealing more jobs from American people than uh, the other people around the world. The Trump administration is spurning the Trans-Pacific Partnership. What effect do you think this will have on China's activities in the Asia-Pacific region? This certainly uh, will help China feel like they can take the leadership role in, in carving out some kind of economic uh, free trade zone uh, in the Asia-Pacific region. They've clearly been working on RCEP for some time now. Um, if RCEP doesn't pass uh, because India is playing the spoiler in, in that trade partnership, uh, China may choose to work on free trade partnerships with just uh, Japan and South Korea, and then the ASEAN countries may you know, try to pressure India to, to be more agreeable. But I think that by uh, leaving TPP, uh, it just, you know, creates less competition for China in terms of trying to secure their dominance in um, economic affairs there. And you say many other nations in the region may well be relieved by Washington avoiding the TPP. Well, I say that only because uh, many of these countries in the region are aware of uh, the rivalry between U.S. and China in trying to uh, gain influence from them, uh, U.S. trying to... Uh, when influenced through security uh, superiority and China through its economic superiority and dominance. And so a lot of countries feel somewhat um, split or torn in terms of where their true, truest interests lie and where their allegiance would lie and have basically split loyalties uh, with U.S. on one hand and security and China and economic on the other. TPP would probably make some of these countries feel uh, more awkward in that they would have to uh, try to 
placate both countries from the economic front, but without TPP, maybe they won't have to worry about that as much. Whatever the reality of China as uh, the major siphon of jobs uh, from the United States, how do you think Trump's proposals generally to bring manufacturing jobs back to the U.S. will affect China's economy? I think that the effect on China's economy um, will be felt, although uh, not as seriously as some would think. Uh, even though the U.S. is a huge destination for Chinese exports, uh, Chinese exports on the whole have been falling as a percentage of their GDP because they've been trying to uh, rebalance their economy to a more consumer and service-oriented economy, which they've done uh, quite successfully. Service now accounts for over 50% of their GDP, uh, and their exports have fallen uh, to roughly 20% of their GDP. And uh, U.S. as a percentage of those exports is only about a fifth. And so all in all, the percentage of uh, exports that are destined for the U.S. from China is probably at best 4 or 5% of their GDP if you count everything. And so if all exports ended tomorrow, that's how much it would affect them. Uh, that certainly is still a big number, but um, it will not collapse their economy. Uh, China has uh, many other countries they trade with. They're the largest trading nation in the world, and so they certainly have uh, the diversification to make their economy much more resilient. Indeed, China has been making efforts uh, to invest in many places, uh, notably Africa and Latin America. Uh, move its manufacturing and its uh, marketing offshore. In the coming years, how will Chinese uh, approach to building economic and political influence outside its borders go? I believe if, if the status quo continues, uh, China certainly will uh, continue to build more manufacturing offshore in those locations to try to build up their markets uh, when they uh, go to these regions, they're normally uh, the only player or the biggest player around, and they certainly have a big impact on their economies. They uh, generate a lot of jobs for these local economies, and, uh, and once they stimulate them, uh, certainly these people will start to buy Chinese products as well. And so uh, it becomes this self-fulfilling prophecy where uh, China intends to create many Chinas out of all these other nations around the world. And uh, if they're successful in doing this, uh, which there are plenty of signs that they are, then certainly uh, these people will uh, feel you know, much closer to China economically, certainly, and possibly politically down the road. Your book, What the U.S. Can Learn from China, was released in 2012. Now that a few years have passed, to what degree do you see America taking the lesson? I wish that they would take more lessons, um, but, uh, you know, it's, it's unfortunate that maybe some of these lessons will take much longer for them to be accepted. Um, when I listened to Trump's inaugural speech, I thought that maybe he was going to uh, you know, take 
a chapter out of my book and, and make an example of it when he said that he wanted to make U.S. sort of the shining model and avoid having to uh, intervene in other countries and force our way of governance on other people and just uh, try to attract people by uh, showing them how wonderful uh, what our, you know, what our values are, and, and how we live, and inspire people to emulate us. Um, but since that time, it doesn't seem like he's uh, taking that route. When he uh, is certainly talking tough to other nations and hurting uh, diplomatic ties that have taken years to build up, and wanting to uh, build the military uh, so that. Uh, war is more likely. I think that this is certainly not uh, what I was suggesting uh, in my book. And, and, you know, I remain hopeful that maybe uh, things, policies may reverse, but uh, only time will tell. Uh, anything else you'd like to add about the trends you see in China or the U.S.? Yes. I'd like to say that the hardline approach to trade and other matters under the Trump administration is a bit disconcerting because I think it could set a precedent for other nations to follow. And when this me first attitude and approach to foreign affairs uh, dominates, this could create an environment that uh, fosters far less cooperation and will start to look more like the conditions that led to World War II when it was more every nation for itself. A lot of these international institutions were set up for a reason. Uh, they set norms for behavior. And just like the fact that nations have laws and rules in order to make civilization possible, you know, if citizens decided to take matters into their own hands, you just create chaos. And likewise, in the international community, uh, if there aren't uh, global norms that are acceptable to everybody, and countries start taking matters into their own hands, uh, we could see a, a situation where you know, more chaos ensues. And I don't think that would bode well for global growth or uh, advancement in human civilization. And so, uh, and so I would say that is you know, what is top of mind these days for me. Professor Lee, thank you. Thank you. Born in Hong Kong to Chinese parents, Ann Lee is adjunct professor of economics and finance at New York University, former visiting professor at Beijing University, and author of the 2012 book, What the U.S. Can Learn from China, published by Barrett Kohler. Since we spoke, after North Korea launched still more missiles, the U.S. moved up scheduled deployment of its Terminal High Altitude Area Defense, or THAAD, anti-missile system to be followed by missile-capable Gray Eagle drones, and by one South Korean account, participation by the Navy SEAL Team 6 in war games reportedly to include simulating a decapitation strike on the North's leadership and nuclear stockpile, despite all the destabilization that would imply. As U.S. Secretary of State Rex Tillerson began an urgent mission to the region, some ruling party leaders in Japan began pushing for preemptive strike capability of their own. Beijing warned of a head-on collision between Washington and Pyongyang, 
and threatened, quote, consequences for both Washington and Seoul as it launched economic pressures against South Korean firms, apparent retaliation for deployment of the THAAD system, whose radars enable surveillance of Chinese territory. With plans for a Trump-Xi Jinping presidential summit next month still unconfirmed, Premier Li Keqiang said China hoped to avoid a trade war, but quoted a think tank report that U.S. firms would, quote, bear the brunt of it. Featured in the new WPJ Winter Issue, cover line Interrupted, written and edited entirely by female authors and experts, you'll find articles on the fight for gender parity in Kenya and Somalia, on a Saudi-Egyptian alliance literally going on the rocks, and on the bad manners and serious bias that can infect the algorithms behind artificial intelligence. World Policy On Air is a production of World Policy Journal at the nonprofit World Policy Institute in New York. Editor Christopher Shea, online news editor Laurel Jerombeck, podcast producer Anna Grace Carter. I'm David Alpern.